Alrighty, we're looking, uh, continuing in the Westminster Larger Catechism. We're going to hopefully finish question three today, and I hope we'll also be able to finish question four, but uh, we'll see how far we get um, and how much time takes us. So, okay, so we were looking in uh, question three last time at the nature of the scriptures as the word of God. So the scriptures, we're thinking about the actual book, the book, the words we'd hold, but the word of God, what is the actual spiritual nature of this? And uh, so we saw that the scriptures are the word of God. And then the second part of the question answers that they are the only rule of faith and practice. Okay. So we're looking at the scriptures as the only rule of faith and practice. And if uh, the first doctrine that they are the word of God is talking about the inspiration of scripture, that is the fact that they came from God, uh, this doctrine, the only rule of faith and practice is referencing the authority of scripture, that only scripture has the ability to bind us to rules of faith and practice. So when we're talking about a rule, the rule of faith and practice, what we're talking about is that objective standard, right? Like a ruler is a thing by which you measure whether something else is straight. And so we can see the scriptures as the rule by which we test everything else by, like a plumb line we're holding to see whether every idea or practice that is posed to us lines up with this rule. It's like a test. Um, whether it's what we're to believe or how we ought to behave, um, nothing can have any compelling force in these circumstances unless it is based and accords with the rule of Scripture. And so uh, the implication here is that the Scripture is sufficient to guide both our minds and our lives for how we ought to behave and what we are to believe. Uh, but one thing that's important to note in this, that we're saying scripture is sufficient to tell us these things, is that it's not entirely comprehensive. The scripture doesn't speak to everything we might do. But in principle, the principles of the word of God have application to everything. So what it does say we must believe and bring into our lives, what it does command us, we ought to practice. Um, it's like um, all the seeds that are needed to flower into a harvest of righteousness in our lives are found in the word of God. And uh, there's maybe two errors that we can see on this front that we might be prone to fall into one side or the other. Uh, the first is ignoring this, pr this principle of scripture sufficiency, where many people will say, well, the Bible doesn't really say anything about dating, therefore I'll just go and kind of do this as I want. Or the scripture doesn't really tell me much about how to run my business, therefore I can basically just go and do what I want. Scripture doesn't really talk about politics, so I can just kind of go with what seems right to me and my understanding. But that's ignoring the fact that scripture gives us principles that do apply to every single situation of life, if not explicitly, implicitly, and by implication. But there's another error on the opposite side, which we might sometimes find uh, we can be more prone to fall into in our churches, and that is not ignoring scripture, but ignoring everything else, saying, unless I have a book, chapter, and verse, I cannot um, consider any data. Um, we, we, you see this often in terms of um, psychology or counseling. That's like, well, if this isn't something, um, maybe a mental health issue that's explicitly stated in those terms in scripture, uh, we can't think about it. 
But just as we use many terms and ideas and discoveries of science, there's ideas and discoveries in philosophy and psychology um, that can all be helpful to us. But it's just we want to take in all the data and then apply it to the rule of Scripture. So just because we can't find something explicitly stated in Scripture, that doesn't mean that it can't be useful and diagnostic. Um, and in the same way... Um, yeah, okay. Looking at Scripture, we don't want to ignore it. And a lot of times also what this leads to is people only want to find explicit statements in Scripture for what they can or can't do. Um, I remember well, I had some cousins at one point that were saying, well, I can't find any verse that says you can't have sex before marriage. It's never stated in that way. Therefore, I'm not even sure if the Bible says anything here. It's like, no, the, the principles of sexual purity are very clear of how they would apply in that situation. And it doesn't take too much um, thinking through the logic to come to those sorts of conclusions, but um, that, that might be called an overly biblicistic way of thinking, that we need explicit statements for everything. Uh, but we'll see in our confession that we also believe that examples in Scripture teach us authoritatively, but also logical implications from the text of Scripture also have a binding authority for us. So if there is a necessary inference from either examples or uh, different pieces of scripture, that also carries with it binding authority, not only the explicit statements. Um, and this is actually, the, the error of being what we're calling biblicistic here is an error that is common in Anabaptist circles, uh, which was those were the non-reformers um, who were uh, coming down into modern-day Baptists. But the Anabaptists in particular took a very explicit approach to Scripture where they'd say, um, well, we believe in nonviolence because Jesus says to turn the other cheek. Uh, they take that one explicit statement, but they don't harmonize it with the rest of the Bible, where we see God even commanding just war in certain circumstances. Or they'd say, you can never take an oath because Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But then they don't harmonize it with the data about Paul taking an oath and God approving it. And the other passages that do seem to have a positive view of oaths. So we need to harmonize the data of Scripture and not just stake our claim on one explicit statement, neglecting the whole. Because the whole Bible is our rule of faith and practice, not just the verses we like. And there's many more examples of that, um, yeah, that we could go into, but we'll move on. Um, okay, so application on this. What's really important here when we're looking at scripture as our rule of faith and practice is that we cannot add our own rules of faith and obedience. And this is so important. That is the an essence of legalism is to be adding or obeying our own rules of faith and practice. And we've seen this happen uh, historically. The Roman Catholic Church, as it grew in the Middle Ages, started adding rules of faith and practice. Um, adding to, for example, God's two ordinances in Christ of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they go to seven ordinances. Um, they add marriage as a sacrament, penance as a sacrament, anointing with oil as a sacrament, uh, holy orders as a sacrament, confirmation as a sacrament, uh, plus all the rituals and other things, rules of practice that are not based on scripture, but are based on human history and their own traditions. That's an example of adding new rules of faith and practice. 
We also see this error evident in uh, philosophy and in science, where particularly in the 1800s, even here in, in America, uh, reason became the rule of faith and practice. So whatever in scripture didn't seem reasonable and didn't seem to make sense was slowly jettisoned. And that's where we get eventually in the 20th century, we have uh, um, theologians like Rudolf Boltman, whose goal was to what he called demythologize the New Testament. Say, let's take out the parts in here that are mythic and legendary, which is going to be all the miracles, everything that didn't accord with reason. You see, he was holding his reason as the rule of faith and practice, not the Bible themselves. Does that make sense so far? Okay, so let's come a bit closer to home. Um, how do we sometimes fall into this? Or how might we have seen um, adding new rules to faith and practice, not in scripture, in maybe more our circles? And I'm going to speak a little bit from just personal history here. You might not have all experienced this. But um, I think one of the primary ways that I've seen this in the church is in family life. Um, because we know raising kids is important, marriage is important, that is the prime place I've seen where extra rules other than scripture are added that become measures of faith and practice. So you might think going back even to the beginning of life, uh, books like Ezo's Baby Wise have in some circles elevated books like that so highly that when they see a parent deviating from it, there's a condemnation like they're actually disobeying God, disobeying scripture. But you have to recognize that for however much wisdom might be in a book, nothing can come and compete with the word of God. It has to be subservient to it. We test everything by the word and reject any man-made rules. Or uh, whether it's the uh, pet-style child training of Michael and Debbie Pearl, or uh, various elaborate courtship rituals that have been developed and implemented, which really are nowhere in scripture. Again, they might be wise, they might be helpful, but it cannot become a rule by which we judge other people that don't raise their families like we do. Uh, we have to recognize that scripture alone is the rule of faith and practice. Um, or whether it's uh, particular types of clothing or toys for boys and girls that are, these are the right kind of toys and the wrong kind of toys. Uh, that's not in scripture. Uh, and we have to watch out for it. So uh, we also can't let, maybe I could summarize this in a sense as, um, is that 1950s nuclear family life is not the rule of faith and obedience, okay? Scripture is the rule of faith and obedience, not some uh, golden age in history that we might want to return to. Okay, so maybe a little closer to home. Uh, another way this happens is in, in economics, where uh, free market libertarian economic policy I've seen come to trump anything scripture might say. And the philosophy of these economists becomes the penultimate. Um, again, might be true, might be wise, but it can't be the rule of this is the only way to look at the world. It has to be scripture. And though something might seem logical, if it's not based on scripture, we have to be careful. Again, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying sometimes these things get elevated, that anyone who thinks differently is condemned as a heretic instead of having a discussion biblically. Or um, maybe another way is where the middle-class lifestyle becomes our rule of faith and practice. Um, 
where why would you ever move to a foreign country to the mission field that might be dangerous? Don't you know that your kids need to be safe above all? We should live in a nice, safe community. Never move to the inner city where you might be in danger. Um, why would you ever divest your assets and give them to charity? Don't you know that you can compound your interest and be wealthy later in life? Uh, why would you be that generous? You should save appropriately. You should be safe appropriately and comfortable appropriately. Um, that becomes the rule of the right way to live. And not that there's anything wrong with saving or being safe, but sometimes just these norms that we've inculcated as this is the nice West Michigan life, if you will, can kind of get elevated to rules of faith and practice. Um, again, it's got to be scripture. Um, and we need to be watching out for this in our own hearts. Whether One way you can notice this is, um, what criticisms do you think of other people most commonly? Um, if you think of someone's like, oh man, I really don't agree with the way those people are living in this way, or why do they keep doing this? And think, is this actually a biblical error that I see them committing, or do, are they just living in a different rule than what I think is the right rule to live with? That might be a way to expose our own hearts by what are the standards we're trying to hold people to and judging them by? Is it our own standards or the standards of God's word? Okay, any, any questions or comments uh, before we move on to the next question? Everyone's worried now. It's like, oh no, what are we doing? Like I said, it's, it's good for us to hit close to home. It's really easy to condemn like everyone else, right? But we want to try to think, where are these in our life? Yeah, Andrew. Presbyterians don't have any yeah, none at all. None at all. Yeah, I think we could think of that in different ways. So I think um, we could say like theological implications like the Trinity. It's never stated so explicitly, but the logic of that is so inescapable that that is black and white. But I think maybe more what you might be thinking of is I think often um, our applications of scripture that we might see as a logical progression from it. Um, I think there might be a lot of room for difference. So, you know, when the Bible talks about that there needs to be um, some sort of differences between male and female, some people might disagree how those gender distinctions ought to look and how extreme those ought to be. Or even keeping the Sabbath, we'd say that the implication, I'd say the logic of Scripture is airtight that the Sabbath continues today, but exactly how that should be practiced you might say, well, logically, I think it means you shouldn't do this thing, but there's room for someone else to say, I don't think that that is logically necessitated. So I'd say that's more by way of application, there's gray area, and we don't want to hold other people to our applications of scripture as um, the word of God. D does that make sense? Is that a helpful distinction? So I think, yeah, primarily application, I think there's gray area. And obviously we have grace for people uh, like Baptists that don't see the logical necessity of infant baptism. Um, that's fine to say, I can understand that you don't see that logical implication. Um, we don't have to judge people that some things are more and less clear in scripture. So yeah, we, we do wanna be open-handed about some things that are a bit less clear, but yeah, good, good question. Okay, question four. 
This is the question that is asking, how doth it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? So this is really similar to question two, which said, how does it appear that there is a God? Okay, what is the evidence for God's existence? Now, how does it appear that the scriptures, that this book is God's word? So we're looking at what are the evidences that the Bible is the word of God? Um, and the three evidences it gives, if I was to summarize them, is that scripture's quality Scripture's unity and Scripture's efficacy all testify that the Bible is the Word of God. So here's what it says um, in full. The Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. So you'll notice that last caveat was the same, and it says, how does it appear God exists, right? There's that light of nature, works of providence, but the Spirit alone truly produces faith in God. In the same way, these qualities of Scripture, they testify, they're shouting that it's the Word of God, but the Spirit alone ultimately persuades the heart to have faith that the Scriptures are the Word of God, okay? And the first thing we want to note about um, these three sets of qualities is that these are all intrinsic qualities to Scripture. That is, they are internal to the document itself. Um, whereas today, in most apologetics and talks about Scripture, the primary thing people focus on to bring about trust in Scripture are external things. Uh, they, they love talking about, you know, we have this many manuscripts of Shakespeare or Plato, but we have this many manuscripts of the Bible. Therefore, shouldn't the Bible be so trustworthy? Although they'll talk about how the Masoretic scribes were so careful and detailed when they copied the Bible that we just know it must have come to us um, uncorrupted because they wouldn't have made mistakes. And those things are good and true for the transmission of scripture, but the evidence that scripture is the word of God is ultimately from just what it contains in and of itself. It's unity, it's quality, it's spirituality, it's efficacy. Okay, so that's just important for us to note. There's very much a come and see mentality, right? If people are looking at the Bible trying to determine its truthfulness, if they just stand back and are looking at it as an observer, that's not where the power is. It's actually come open it up, read it for yourself, See for yourself if it doesn't manifest itself to be the word of God, right? Scriptures manifest themselves, not historians and um, lexographers and all these different people. The scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God. And so first, okay, let's look at this first one, how do the scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and by their purity? Okay, if we were going to combine these two, I think the big idea here is scripture's quality. What is the quality of the writing in scripture itself? And we can think of even in other works of literature, the quality of the content testifies to the author, right? Like it would be pretty evident whether a five-year-old wrote an essay or a... 18-year-old wrote an essay or a college professor wrote an essay. You'd be able to tell just by the quality um, 
of the document. And not just the quality of the writing style, uh, for even scripture was written at a very common language style of the day, but the quality of the ideas the, the depth of the ideas, the substantialness of the ideas. And in this, the Bible really does stand alone in its quality. It is, you know, it's the best-selling book of all time. It's the best-preserved book of all time. The most read and most practiced book of all world history. That alone testifies to something of its uniqueness. Something that these ideas grab hold of people's hearts in a way that no other ideas ever have. The, the Bible is the book that has most shaped modern civilization. It's a book really that's changed the world. And so we see in scripture a majesty, uh, just as when Christ is in this world, people said no one spoke like this man, like one with authority. Uh, scripture also, it's, it's otherworldly. It has a wisdom that comes down from above, not a wisdom that just arises from this world. And uh, listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2. He says things like this. We, however, we speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual truths to spiritual people. There is a heavenly, divine, spiritual quality to Scripture. Uh, the sentiments in Scripture are not just sentimental and emotional, but lofty spiritual truths. Um, the, 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 grand, um, the grand truths that speak to the deepest desires and longings of the human heart. Scripture does have a majesty about it. And it also does teach the most ennobling truths about humanity. The idea that each person carries the image of God is fairly unique to Christianity, that everyone has an inestimable, infinite value by virtue of being made in God's image. It's a majestic, ennobling book. But it's also a pure book. As Psalm 12, 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Okay, so we're looking at the purity of Scripture. We're talking about that there's no mixture in it. There's no defilements or contaminants, contaminants in Scripture. It's not that there's a lot of good ideas, but some bad ideas. A lot of God's word, but some human words crept in. No, it's pure. God wouldn't admit any admixture into his word as he's delivered it to us. There's no corruption of knowledge that leads to bad conclusions, right? Um, often in our lives, if you're wrong about one thing, often that can affect the whole, right? Like if you're making a recipe and you switch out the baking soda for the baking powder, it can totally mess up your entire recipe. One corruption of knowledge can totally um, have drastic results. And same with scripture, God's pure words don't allow any corruption that would come and corrupt the whole. And if we're thinking about purity, when you look into it, we can think of the writings of mere people are kind of like muddy puddles, right? You look at it, it's a bit cloudy, you can maybe see something in it, versus the Bible is kind of like a clear ocean where it's so vast, you can peer so deep into it, there's so much there. It's so infinitely pure because it's the mind of God coming down to us. So amazing. 
Okay, so that's the majesty and purity of Scripture. Secondly, it says the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God. So the, um, the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God. The big idea here is Scripture's consistency and its unity. And this is amazing considering that the Bible was written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. That's a long span of time and a lot of people to have still a unifying message, a, a unifying story that fits throughout it. And if we remember back to the argument of creational design, um, teleology, that the design of something points to the designer, the fact that scripture has a clear design and outline to it points to the mind of a divine author coordinating all these human parts. Uh, scripture is remarkably harmonious. And um, one objection to this, the consent of all the parts, is critics of Scripture make a lot of uh, supposed contradictions in Scripture. And they can multiply a lot of these. And I won't say too much about this, but just that upon close inspection, a lot of them melt away just to misunderstanding the biblical text. Many are easily explained. Uh, some are explained when you understand the context and history. Many others are still explained by uh, the potential of maybe a slight copyist error or a slight transmission error, because um, we don't have the original documents, right? We, we hold to that inerrancy in the original manuscripts. But that does away with most of them, and there might be a handful that are very difficult to explain. And at that point, it's easy to say, Maybe I don't know how these harmonize together, but God does. And even at those points, uh, the differences are so insignificant to the actual content, the doctrine, the narrative of, of Scripture, as to be utterly inconsequential to the whole. And so people make much of this, but it actually, upon inspection, usually ends up being a far, far smaller problem than people think. And it's okay to humbly say, I don't know how to answer that. Um, that God's not scared of that, of that sort of critique. And so when we take all the parts of Scripture, every individual book, it's almost like they're each their own candle. And they all come together to make this one divine flame. We see from that um, um, the uniqueness of all the parts, yet a total unity in the whole. That all shines that one message of the redemptive message of Jesus Christ. And that is then leading us to this idea of what is the scope of the whole to give glory to God. So this idea of the scope of scripture, this was actually a common medieval moving into a Reformation idea that was actually a part of their theology. Uh, in Latin, they called it the scopus scripturae. Uh, so if you want to sound fancy today, talk about the scopus scripturae. But when they were talking about this idea, what they were talking about is what is the gravitational center of scripture? So we, we often think of scope as what is the breadth of something, but they are talking about scope as what is the central thing around which everything spins? What is the sun of scripture around which all those planetary movements come? So the gravitational center, that, that main thrust. And the Catechism says that it is to give glory to God. And I think we might properly expand that to say, to give glory to God through Christ by the Spirit. Uh, and why do I say that? So uh, the framers, this is just a good side note, the framers of this Catechism and the Confession as well, they wrote them just words as they were based on their scriptural knowledge. 
And then the parliament, when it was going to approve it, they said, why don't you add some scripture references to support your ideas? And so then they went back again and found verses to footnote in there. And so um, although those are there, it's not as if to say that every sentence here was based on the one verse given. A lot of the data of this catechism is based on the logical implications of scripture and the idea of it, of the whole. So if sometimes you're reading those proof texts, you're like, how did they get that from that? Um, you might think, well, they're really bringing in probably a hundred ideas here, but they were forced to give one little footnote. So that's the best single verse they could come up with. Okay. But what those footnotes do do is they give us sometimes an idea of what they were probably meaning by the phrase. So I think the footnotes here on giving glory to God in all of scripture are helpful to elucidate a more Trinitarian meaning. So they, they add Luke 24, 27, where it's Jesus on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples. And he says, it says that beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in the scriptures, all things concerning himself. So Jesus is testifying that all things in scripture point back to him. And then in Acts 26, 22, Paul says, Therefore, having obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying nothing other than those things which both the prophets and Moses said should come. So Paul says that his gospel message is no different than what Moses and the prophets said. So this is a testimony from both Jesus and Paul that their message is, is not contradicting in any way, but is right in accord with what has been being said in the scriptures up till that point. And we need to reject a thinking that makes such a difference between the Old and New Testament to think that there's all this new stuff happening in the New Testament. A better idea of what's happening in Jesus and Paul is, is an, an, an elucidation or an expansion, almost like the Old Testament is a bud and then in the New Testament, we see that flower opening and we see a lot more in it. It's not that those things, ideas didn't exist back then. It's just they were small and hard to see. Or um, I don't know if any of you guys have one of those like pop-up tent trailers that it's like, it starts off, it's pretty small. You probably couldn't sleep in it. But then once you park it and pop open the roof, you pop open the sides, this thing expands, this thing expands. You're like, wow, this is actually a roomy home. This is actually quite a nice place to stay. Uh, maybe that's a way to think of that Old to New Testament, that it's all compressed and it is a bit uncomfortable at times and it's a bit hard to tell what's the point. But then once it, it pops open, Christ comes and the Spirit and they open it up and then it's like, oh, this was here the whole time, but I just couldn't see it. I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. So that's what we're seeing in the scope of Scripture. Okay, what is the gravitational center of Scripture? It is the glory of God. But uh, I think there's an, an error that I think, and it's particularly in our circles, or maybe not an error, a unbalance that has popped up recently. So there has been, over the last maybe decade, a heavy, heavy emphasis on all of Scripture speaking of Christ. What some would call Christocentric interpretation of Scripture, or a redemptive historical interpretation of Scripture that really does want to go and see Jesus on every page of the Bible. Um, and that's good for what it's worth, but the problem is when it minimizes God in all of Scripture, right? We are triune, are Trinity believing Christians. And sometimes I fear that this emphasis on Christ has resulted in a de emphasis on God 
on the Father and the Spirit. And at times it seems that this, this fear of what if I can't find Christ in this text leads to either a, like a personal anxiety that I'm not Christian enough or an idea of I have to try to shoehorn Christ into here. But I want us to have an idea that the total center of scripture is God. We want to have a theocentric interpretation of the Bible, seeing God as the center. And I think if we want to distinguish this between the persons, I think we can see the Father, Son, and Spirit are this center gravitational force of Scripture in different ways. Okay, The Father is the gravitational center of Scripture principially or normatively. That is, all those divine uh, principles of Scripture— the moral norms of scripture that are based on God's character, we can all trace that to the Father. So all these, th- everything we learn about sin and righteousness, beauty and ugliness, the center of all those is God the Father, the creator preeminently. So if we view scripture by principles or as a system, the Father is the center. But if we change our perspective and view scripture historically along the line of progress from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus himself is the historical center of scripture. The actual story that moves from creation to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to Christ, to the new heavens and new earth, Christ is the center of that human story, okay? So that's where we see Christ in all of scripture. The history line of scripture is centered on Christ. The normative moral line, the principles of the universe are centered on the Father, But then if we change our perspective again to our experience of life, the Holy Spirit is the experiential center of scripture. Anytime someone's eyes were opened to truth, anytime someone was converted from sin or had power to obey, all our experiences of God are centered on the Holy Spirit and our walk with him and his work in our lives. So the Holy Spirit is the center of scripture if we think of it through our human perspective at the time of it working. And so in this way, we can confess that God himself is the central scope of scripture and his glory. Because Father, Son, and Spirit all have the same mission to glorify God. Okay, so let's just keep our eyes open for God in scripture. Yes, we want to see Christ, but we also want to see the Father and the Spirit. Does that make sense? It doesn't sound heretical to anybody. I, I, I think we've got a bit unbalanced in this over the past while. But anyways... Cool. Okay, we're almost done. A couple more minutes. Theocentric interpretation. Um, I do what's really cool. When we think back to question one, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? That's actually basically the same um, idea as the chief end of scripture. The chief end of scripture is also to glorify God. Um, we, we are working with God in this. Okay, so the third idea that testifies that scripture is the word of God is their light and power to convince and convert sinners and to build up believers unto salvation. Um, This is, the big idea here is that we see scripture's divinity in its effects, how it actually changes lives. Saying scripture is the only thing God uses by his spirit to convert sinners and to build up believers. It's It's like proprietary information in God's economy. It's the only thing that works. Um, I was hearing an interview with Elon Musk a while back about the rockets he's building for SpaceX. And he was asking if he could find some sort of clean energy to launch the rockets into space. And he said, no, 
only jet fuel will work. Only jet fuel, as far as we can tell, will ever work to launch these rockets, because it's the only thing with enough power and potency to actually have an effect. And that's like scripture. There's a lot of other fuels people have in their life, self-help guides, but only scripture actually has that rocket, that jet fuel power that will actually do a spiritual transformation in the heart of a person. It has light and power to convince and convert sinners. Light that enlightens the dark mind to see what is truly there. Power to melt the hard heart. James 1.18 says that by God's own will, he gave us new birth by the word of truth, so that we should be a first fruits of his creatures. But not just for sinners, also to build up believers unto salvation. The light and power of the scriptures that saves is also the light and power that sanctifies us and renews us, renews our minds by the word to obey God. Um, it's useful for our edification and sanctification. And so the summary here, to summarize all these, is that the scriptures do reveal themselves to be um, of divine origin by their glorious content, by their profound unity, and by their efficacious power. And so what does that mean for us? Is that we should come to the word every time we read it expectantly. This is the power source. This is the light source. It is majestic and pure. It testifies to us about God and Christ. So we need to come with it saying, I expect something to happen when I read this book because this is a divine book. So we come to it prayerfully. We come to it eagerly. We come to scripture attentively with expectation that God will speak to us in it. We don't just come casually, peruse the page, and on we go. No, we need to come recognizing this. After all, um, I think it's just good to end with this reminder from Psalm 19, um, 7 to 9, just what it tells us, what does scripture do? It says that the law of the Lord is perfect, first converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Don't we need some joy in our day-to-day -day life? The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And so in all these ways, Scripture testifies that it is the Word of God. But again, this last reminder, this caveat for us, reminds us that the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone able to fully persuade it that it is the Word of God. So this conviction that the Scriptures are a divine communication is truly, ultimately, a spiritual gift. So when unbelievers are not accepting it, we can understand that because it is ultimately a spiritually discerned truth. But we want to invite them to encounter God in the scriptures. Because um, just as the scriptures witness of Christ, the spirit of God witnesses of Christ in the scriptures. And just a last encouragement for us is that if you have been convinced through your own experience that these scriptures are a divine origin, if you've seen the majesty and purity of this book, if you've seen the God-glorifying story that's presented, if you've experienced that light and power, then praise God, because that is a spiritual gift to you that hasn't been given to many other people in this world. And so if you do see clearly, if you trust that these scriptures are the word of God, what an amazing gift that is that God has given to you. 
Um, it's just profound. And that's something to be rejoiced in because that fact alone testifies to you that you're a child of God. Because as Christ said to Peter, um, flesh and blood did not reveal to you that the scriptures are the word of God. That is a gift of God's spirit. So let's just thank God for the gift of his spirit to give us um, discernment to know that this book is the word of God. And then let's use it. And so even now we have an opportunity as we come to worship to come to the hearing of God's word expectantly, expecting it to be the word of God to us that has life-changing power. Okay, let's do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is truth. Your word reveals your mind, and we want to have the mind of Christ. We want to have the mind of the Spirit. We want to see more of you, more of your glory, more of your majesty, more of your beauty and power. So, Lord, make us to be a people who diligently search out your word as for hidden treasure, that we would be diligent to look at it and to stare in that mirror that we might see Christ, that we might see the Father's love, the Spirit's power and that you might conform us to the image of our Savior. Lord, bless our worship even this morning as we hear of your word. Grant us hearing ears, grant us receptive hearts, all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.